0: Welcome to this week's sermon from Amblecote Community Church. Amen. <coughs> Thank you, Adrian. sort of things you are saying remind me a bit of my father-in-law. Um, many of you knew him, a guy called Paul Miller. He, on more than one occasion, I heard say um, to the people he was preaching to that how uh, you experience his sermon had a lot more to do with the condition of your heart than anything he had prepared, which I thought on the one hand was a nice way of ducking the responsibility (laughs) of delivering a good sermon. But on the other hand, I think it spoke something true into what Adrian's saying to us, that we don't preach every Sunday just so that we can all know more about an ancient set of books called the Bible. We preach because we believe that in doing so, there's the opportunity for God's word to change us from the inside out. And transform us and to make us more like him but that only happens if we're willing to let it happen to us so i think in a generous reading that's what my father-in-law was trying to get at um so yeah i'm gonna carry on taking us through the book of genesis i'm gonna start by uh, asking for a little show of hands as to who in the room would consider themselves an optimist And who in the room would consider themselves a sort of pessimist. Now, so we've got a a very few number of people willing to own up to being pessimists. Now, in my experience, this is because those of you who are pessimists out there will actually describe yourselves as realists. But really, us optimists know that you're just pessimists. (laughs) It's always interesting kind of different experience of uh, being someone who takes a rosier look at the glass than someone who takes a glass half-empty look. And in a similar way, I think we all tend to have a slightly different emotional reaction when we um, think about what's going on in the world around us. Uh, Some of us tend to be pretty positive about how humans are getting on generally and, and we'll have a sort of set of statistics and observations that we will... Lean into, And others of us kind of regularly lurch from despair to despair to despair about the state of things. I myself tend towards a more rosy view in, in general in life. You know, there's, ah, by personality for me, there's normally an opportunity in every challenge. Things aren't always as bad as they seem. Uh, but even for me, with my natural disposition, um, I can't but help... Uh, when we look at some of the evidence of uh, what's going on, I can't help concluding that something at least has gone quite badly wrong with the world that we live in. Um, kind of one of the things that dominates our headlines at the moment is the war in Ukraine, isn't it? And the kind of hundreds of thousands now of casualties there, which is only a percentage of the war casualties in the twenty-first century, which is only additional to the one hundred and eighty-seven million or so who. Uh, were killed in conflicts in the 20th century, and so on. And um, those sort of observations seem inescapable to me. Um, there's other hard facts that we can look at. Um, you know, there's facts about human violence outside of war. I uh, I read this week, well over a million violent crimes in the UK last year. It won't surprise some of you who who are more aware of these things, but it struck me as quite a lot, really. Two and a half million people in the uk domestically abused and on the global scale i think one of the one of the ones that um that i find most disturbing is th- th- something like about 200 million people who are starving and another 200 million who are at risk of starving and two and a half billion tons of food that we throw away each year you know those again some of you'll be familiar with those but you know, millions starve and a third of the food that we produce is chucked away. And there's, some, there's something about these things that for most of us, when we dwell on them, there's a sort of sense of that just doesn't seem like it should be the case. <laughs> you know. But I think um, it's, I, I, you can tell a story of what's going on out there. But for all of us, there's always a story of what's going on in here and in our lives as well, isn't there? Not all of us are the victims or perpetrators of violent crime or abuse or starvation. But I think we all will know what it is to suffer. We all will know what it is to hurt and to be hurt by others. And I think we will all have had the particularly kind of odd experience of hurting people that we love, isn't it? We all do that. And it's in its very essence a bit strange that those that we love are often those that we hurt. It's not just the things out there that feel like something's gone wrong, but it's the things in here as well, isn't it? Um, Even when I know what I should do, I often don't do it. And I think for most of us, uh, the the week-to-week reality is it's the things that have gone wrong in our personal lives and in our relationships that are the ones that um, we sort of most have to wrestle with. The relational, personal griefs and breakdowns and damages. But the, why I say all this? What I want to try and kind of get to you together is: don't you sense in all of this, in you, a response that sort of says things shouldn't be like this? <laughs> On some level, this shouldn't be the way it is. You know, we don't the, we don't normally experience the sort of suffering or these kind of realities and internally think, oh, well, that's fine. <laughs> Normally, our internal reaction is, oh, you know, we, want to, we either want to do something about it. So some of those statistics, the food waste or whatever, we think, wow, we need to stop throwing away so much food and get it to time people. We want to change it. We have a sense of it's not okay, but that there's something wrong. And that's really what this sermon this morning is going to be about. As we explore um, the, the framework of our lives and our world and the story of God. As we explore one of the opening themes of God's story. It's one that speaks into this reality that we all experience of things are not okay. And the Bible has something to say about that and a way to make sense of that which leads us, hopefully, into what is true. So, um, yeah, so we're going we're gonna to look at Genesis 3 together this morning to explore this. In the opening week of this series a few weeks back, um, we explored how Genesis tells the story of the infinite personal God who created a good creation out of nothing, unopposed, By the power of his will, a good creation full of his glory. And last week, Tim spoke about the creation of mankind in the image of God. Um, This week is about what went wrong. Why, if that was how our world began, why is it now tarnished with suffering and with evil? And Genesis chapters 3 to 11 speak directly to this question. Today we're just going to deal with Genesis 3 and we're going to read some of the text, explore what it has to say to us. Um, If you heard me uh, preach at the start of the series, I hope you will recall what I said then about how we read these texts well. It's important that we try to listen to what this chapter of Genesis is trying to say to us because the genre of this text is different to other parts of the Bible. And therefore, we cannot read it as a simple, literal history. The whole style of writing is more mythological in the sense that it's telling a story about the foundation of our world. And it's polemical in the sense that it's telling a story about the true God at a time when there were many other stories of other gods out there. The key thing I I talked about a few weeks ago, and what I encourage us again this morning is to try to listen to what is really being said, to what the text is trying to give us, and not to get distracted by other issues that might be secondary. So we're going to do that this morning. We're going to read some of the text now. I have got it on slides, I hope, but you're more than welcome to open your Bibles as well, if you have them with you. Um, And we're just going to read two verses from Genesis chapter 2, which set the context, and then we'll read the opening of Genesis 3. So in Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 to 17, in the uh, narrative of the creation of Adam and Eve, we read this. Hey, there it is. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. You just have to know that that has happened and have that in your minds as we now turn to Genesis 3. So Genesis 3, verses 1 to 7. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And from this moment on, as the chapter goes on, we see how things uh, go wrong We read about how God comes and confronts Adam and Eve, and that as a consequence of their disobedience, all four uh, key relationships that they had in the beginning that were originally good become marred. Their relationship with God is changed. They're driven from the Garden of Eden and from the Tree of Life. Their relationships with one another become ridden with conflict and deceit and manipulation. Can we have the next slide, John. Is that all right? I think I've popped the four up there. Their relationship with themselves becomes marked with shame and fear, and their relationship with the rest of creation becomes marked by struggle and frustration. The original goodness of creation is not erased, but it is blemished. Throughout all that God had created, good will now run the fingers of evil and therefore of suffering. And it would only take a moment of personal reflection to recognise that each of us experiences brokenness in all four of those relationships. So what is this text saying of the story of the apple and the serpent? It's not saying that Adam and Eve just happened to choose the wrong tree to eat from. It's using this imagery to speak to something much more primary, something that the Bible calls sin. And say, let's just walk through the text again and explore that a little bit together. We'll just go through it a little bit at a time. The serpent was more crafty and he said to the women, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Temptation comes to Eve through the voice of the serpent in this narrative. A temptation comes questioning the command of God. Did God actually say this? I wonder. Um, I wonder what the implication is in that serpent's question. In that question, you know, is the is the implication uh, kind of questioning God's wisdom? You know, did God really make such a ridiculous rule as to ban you from eating all the fruit? Is it questioning his goodness? You know, is God really so harsh that he wouldn't let you enjoy the fruit of the garden? I'm not sure, I guess you could read it either way. And Eve then corrects the serpent, doesn't she? She says, No, no, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. What God said is you shan't eat the fruit of this tree in the midst of the garden, lest you die. But having done that, the temptation of the serpent becomes explicit. He says to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. And these are the key verses, I think, to understand what's going on. Temptation comes and whispers three things to the woman, at least three things. You might be able to identify more. And I, I think I've got these on, on the slides for us. So first of all, the first thing temptation whispers is this. God has lied to you. God has said that if you eat of the fruit of this tree, you will die. But the serpent denies it. He says, no, you won't. You won't die. You won't have to face the consequences for your actions and your decisions. You can ignore the warnings and the commands of God. And this may seem silly uh, coming straight off of Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. We've got an infinite personal God who has created everything that exists out of nothing at all. (laughs) To question his commands seems crazy. But it didn't seem so crazy to Adam and Eve. Doesn't seem so crazy to you and me in the moments of our temptation, does it? So, this is the first temptation that kind of God has lied to you. The second one is this God is denying you your freedom. The serpent says that eating the fruits will open the eyes of Adam and Eve and implies that therefore their eyes are currently shut. There's something that Adam and Eve can't see, something they're not experiencing, a freedom that they don't know, a maturity that they haven't attained. And God is keeping it from them. This is the second lie of the temptation, that keeping God's commands and living under his rule will deny you your true freedom, will deny you having all that you could have from life. I get it. I just, I know this reality of my own life. I kind of, some of you are nodding along and you do as well. It's part of how temptation comes, isn't it? Following God's ways means in some way I'm going to be missing out on a greater freedom that I could have. That's the temptation. Thirdly, finally, ye will be like God, knowing good and evil this is the guts of it I think but we do need to tease out what what does it mean to know good and evil does it mean just knowing about good and evil that if you eat the fruit and become like God you'll know about good and evil you'll be able to sort of be aware that these things are good and these things are evil well I don't think that's what it means because they already had that God had said you know that don't do this do you do that so they had they had an awareness of a distinction between what was meant to be good and what was meant to be evil they could already distinguish between right and wrong because they knew the commands of God so I don't think it can mean that could it mean knowing in the sense of the knowing that we have through experience you know you only know what chocolate's like when you eat a bit (laughs) you only know what red is when you see it could it be that that you don't No good and evil until you experience them. I don't think that's what the text is getting at either because the whole point was that they would be like God and God in his very nature has never done evil. So, you know, knowing by the experience of doing evil is a sort of knowledge that God doesn't have. So I don't think that's what it means either. I think the best way to understand this is to understand knowing as the knowing of judgment, that to know good and evil in this sense is to be able to decide what is good and evil, making our own judgments as to what is okay and not okay. And that's why it it would be to become like God. God made the world, He is the source of all that is good and true and beautiful. That's what the narrative of Genesis has said. He is the one who determines good and truth and beauty and rightness. It's his place to judge right and wrong. And the temptation then that is whispered is this temptation to become like him. To be the ones who say and determine what is good and what is evil. To render our own verdicts. I think that's the third and the decisive element of the temptation here. So eat the fruit, you won't face the consequences that God warned you about. You'll no longer be denied your freedom, but you will instead become like God, being able to decide for yourself the right and the good way to live. These are the points where we sort of hope that the Holy Spirit does something us, doesn't it, to outline, ah yes, is that not at the root of temptation for us as well? To want to be the ones who get to choose and to judge rather than to submit to the judgment of God. So this choice to turn away from God's rule and his authority, to refuse to submit to him, to make ourselves the Lord and the judge of our lives, living the way that we think is best, this is what the Bible calls sin. Like that's what sin is at core. And that is what has gone wrong in our world. That's it. The collective, comprehensive human decision to turn away from the authority of God and to say actually I am going to determine what is right and wrong for me. There are other ways the Bible talks about sin. I don't, I don't mean to be reductionistic but that's the kind of core I think. Because when the woman saw the tree was good for feed and a delight to the eyes and was desired to make one wise she took of its fruit and ate gave some to Adam And he ate and the eyes of both were opened and they knew they were naked. Desiring to be wise, desiring to be like God, desiring to become the judges of what was good, humankind fell into sin and suffering and creation was marred by the coming of evil. And Paul sums it up like this in the letter to the Romans, in Romans 1. Um, Again, I think I've got the text on the screen. He writes this, he says, Although they knew God, They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. And Paul wasn't talking specifically about Adam and Eve. He was talking about each of us. So this then is sin, I submit to you. This is our problem. This is the root cause of all that's gone wrong and continues to go wrong in our world. And um, just in the short time that's left, really, I'd just like to give us two uh, perspectives that contribute to our theology of sin. And finish by, well... I guess just uh, pondering a little bit on what that means for our lives today. So sin is our problem. I I hope I've spoken a little bit about what sin is. But there are two ways that I think it might be helpful to summarise it that might be a bit more memorable than some of the stuff that I've said. So first of all, perhaps one easy way to remember this is to think of sin as rebellion. You know, perhaps at its most fundamental, sin is this rebellion I've described against the rightful rule of God that we've explored through, uh, through looking at Genesis 3. That God is the creator and source of all that exists, the definition of the good, the true and the beautiful. He uh, is creation's rightful judge and king. So sin, first of all, is that this decision to reject that and to define it for ourselves is a rebellion against God where we make choices according to our wisdom rather than his, where we become in charge and usher God off the throne. So that's hopefully clear. <laughs> Here's a second one. A second way of sinning, seeing sin is that it's a disordered desire, that our desires are out of kilter and have gone wrong inside of us. We don't, necessarily want the wrong things all the time but we want the right things in the wrong way or in the wrong order I think we see some of this in Genesis 3 when Eve saw that the fruit was good for food and a delight to the eyes and was desired to make one wise dot 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 there's nothing wrong with good food there's nothing wrong with things that delight our eyes There's nothing wrong with wisdom. These were good things for Eve to desire. But she desired them in the wrong place and in the wrong way. She tried to have the good things in her own wisdom. Well, I should speak of them because Adam was there all the time. They sought these things in their own wisdom and their own decisions rather than seeking them. From the hand of God. And so often sin is like this I think. You know you you think of any sin. And it can often be understood like this. As a desire for a good thing in the wrong place. You know adultery. It's take adultery. It's a desire for the. Kind of emotional and sexual intimacy. But it seeks it in the wrong place. It seeks it outside the marriage rather than inside it. Theft seeks the good material things in this world, but it seeks to obtain them in the wrong way, providing them through the force of our action rather than trusting in the provision of God. Often my angry words, the hurtful things that I say to others are on some level seeking a level of justice or a level of truth or seeking a sort of personal security. And these things are good things in themselves, but I seek them in the wrong way often. To desire pleasure and friendship and material comforts is no bad thing. But to desire them above God and his kingdom is to have them out of order. It's one of the most helpful kind of colloquial phrases that surround, I think, that something's out of order. You know, you nick my ball, it's out of order. Well, literally it is. Your desires are out of order. If they were reordered, we'd be okay. When our desires are out of line, we want good things in the wrong way, or we want lesser goods more than greater goods. And these two perspectives, I, I hope you don't see them as alternatives or either or. I think they're both true. And they're both helpful for understanding what's gone wrong. So what, therefore, might this mean for us today, if this is true? Why would, why would it matter? The first reason that I'm passionate about this and think it really matters is because there's good news in our doctrine of sin. Um, The horrendous suffering that goes on in our world, all the corruption and the violence and the harm, is not an unexplained mystery. It's not a kind of meaningless, brute fact of the universe. It's not something that is senseless. It's not just the kind of world we happen to live in and that's that and we can't do anything about it. No, it has a reason. The reason is human sin and rebellion. And this is good news because it actually diagnoses the illness that we live with. Diagnoses the problems that we face. So that we may seek a cure. If we don't know what's wrong, there is little hope of ever finding a solution that might make things right. When, uh, but when we know what's wrong, at least we have some orientation in our, in our world and in our lives. We're not just blown about by the winds and the waves of what's happening, but we have somewhere to stand and to say, I understand this. This makes sense to me. Not in all the details necessarily, but in, in the overarching shape of our world. I know the disease. This is human sin writ large into the world. That's the problem. Because there's lots of theories out there about what's wrong with our world. Down the public. What's wrong is dot 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 across the political spectrum, across the media across the pub there's always lots of views of what's wrong and consequently what needs to happen to put it right but as Christians we just need to be clear in ourselves that it's, like whatever else we can talk about and there's lots of conversations we can have but at root the problem is human sin that's what's gone wrong and that sin is not just something that's out there it's something that's in here and it's not just something that's in here it's something that's out there and both of those are essential for us in 1910, the Times uh, newspaper had run a series of articles by the kind of eminent writers and thinkers of the day asking what's wrong with the world. And they wrote in these essays, analysing what was wrong with the world. And, and the brilliant Christian writer G.K. Chesterton wrote into the newspaper, and he wrote Dear sirs, I am yours, J.K. Chesterton I am what was wrong and what is wrong with the world that's the confession of the Christian he's got a doctrine of sin Who knows but we do not despair as Christians if you've read any of J.K. Chesterton J.G.K. Ch- I can never get it right G.K. Chesterton if you read any of Chesterton he's clearly not a man in despair even though he knows he's the problem Because we know the rest of the storyline, don't we? In, In Genesis, we're exploring the opening themes of God's story. And the entrance of sin into the world is one of the opening themes. But these are just the opening themes. They're not the closing ones. They're not the end of the story. They're not the end of God's action in his creation. And the rest of the story shows how God responds to the fall and the entrance of sin into the world. The story tells how God opens out his salvation and his redemption. And as the series goes on, we will see some of those themes begin to emerge through Genesis. But the reason that we gathered here this morning worshipping Jesus is because we know that at some point in the story, Jesus came. And he came to deal with sin and to set us free. And in fact, I think this is one very good definition of the church, really. Like, what is the church? Well, it's the gathering of those people who are being set free from sin. Not fully set free from sin, but being set free from sin. We've met Jesus. He's changed our lives from the inside out. And at the very heart of that change is how he deals with sin in my inmost being in a a sense that's a kind of litmus test for if we're dealing with the real Jesus and the real God is that the change he brings about in our lives will always start really by addressing my inner reality of my rebellion against God I've talked a lot in the last six months about surrender, I think. I feel like I bang on about it all the time, really. But if the heart of sin is rebellion against God, the heart of being healed is surrendering back to his will and his ways. Um, yeah. So he comes, he transforms us from sin to holiness, from darkness to light. And what he's doing in us, one day he will do for the whole of creation. I'm going to finish with a quote from Blaise Pascal. He a Christian. He wrote in the 17th century. And he wrote that any true worldview must explain both man's greatness and man's depravity. Any true worldview must be able to explain both man's greatness and man's depravity. We are both. I hope these opening sermons in the Genesis series have made that clear our greatness is due to our createdness by the good god which we've explored in the first few weeks our depravity is due to sin in which we've delved today and this makes sense of our past and it makes sense of our presence Blair pascal said he said our miseries reveal our glory like the sense in all of us that something is badly wrong just shows us that we were made for something more That we know what goodness is means we grieve so much at the evil. Our miseries reveal our glory. And if we can understand these themes, then I hope we can begin to make sense of the rest of God's story. That he didn't abandon his creation to sin and suffering, but came to meet us and to set us free. And it's in that hope that we gather, isn't it? And even though we've dwelt on the problem this morning, and that's important, we gather because we've tasted the hope of the solution. So um, we're going to finish that thing, aren't we? Because we're closing early because of our church family meeting. But should we just stand and I'll just pray for us? I think I just want to pray that these truths do change us. Lord God, we teach and preach as your church has done for over 2,000 years. That's not true, is it? Under 2,000 years. For about 2,000 years, we teach and preach, Lord, Because ye have said that your word comes to change us and set us free. And in every generation, your church has known you come through your word to change us and set us free. So we ask for no less this morning than what you have done for every church in every generation that knows you. We pray that your word the revelation of who you are, the doctrine of creation and sin would enter through our heads but beyond our heads into our hearts and by your Holy Spirit would change us that we would be different people, that we would know you, that we would become like you, Say, so we just surrender our hearts and lives against you this morning, Lord, and say, We are scarred and blemished by sin, rebels against you, disordered in our desires, but our hope is in you. And you do not keep your distance from sinners, but you draw near to them. So our hope is in you. Come, Lord. lead us from rebellion to surrender take our disordered hearts and make them new by the power of your Holy Spirit we ask these things Amen Thank you for listening to this podcast from Anvil Hope Community Church For more information about who we are, what we believe, and how you can get involved, check out our website.